I say this a lot, to my team, it is your job. It's a requisite that you speak up. That's something that I really had to work on. And it goes back to just trying to create a culture where there's really good communication and where everybody feels comfortable enough to have that level of vulnerability. Inspired Execution, hosted by Datastax Chairman and CEO Chet Kapoor, follows the journeys of leaders from the world's largest enterprises and fastest-growing startups. Alana Mayo is the president of Orion Pictures, a division of MGM that's dedicated to underrepresented voices and authentic storytelling in film. For as long as she can remember, Alana has always loved engaging with narrative storytelling. Even as a child, she came up with plays based on the American Girl dolls for her friends to perform. Now, Alana has overseen award-winning films like The Big Short, Selma, and many others. In today's episode, she discusses the importance of active listening and vulnerability, how taking a break helped her find clarity on her career journey, advice for recognizing our unconscious biases, and how the film industry is evolving. Ilana, welcome to Inspired Execution. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It is so awesome to have you on the podcast. You are the first non-tech executive accomplished leader that we have on this. And I know you're very technically aligned and, and inclined, and but it is so interesting to have this conversation. I have to say, I was looking back through older episodes and feeling very unimpressed with myself compared to the other people that you've had on this podcast. So the only edge that I have is that I'm coming from an industry that uh, you have not spoken to as much. So uh, that's the only thing that's keeping me from being completely insecure in this conversation. So humble. So you've worked on award-winning films like The Big Short, Selma, and so many others. Tell us a little bit about your journey. I am essentially more than anything, and this is like what's really the most present thing for me right now, is I'm just a story nerd. And so I just was a person who for the entirety of my life, loved engaging with narrative storytelling. I loved reading books when I was growing up. I, I watched a lot of television and a lot of film. And I was very fortunate to have parents who worked in the entertainment industry. And so I knew that you could professionally have a job that revolves around or interacts in some way with entertainment. And so my whole story is around story. It's around loving it and wanting to try to find a way to connect that to a professional life and a career. It's about spending, you know, a lot of time. My, my parents, my mom especially, is also kind of a big nerd and thankfully was very encouraging for me to go to school and, and allowed me to be an English major, which is one of the least practical uh, majors you can have and really engage with my love of story there. And really, I've just been kind of chasing that my whole entire life. Favorite book growing up? Oh, man, it's so hard. This is such a good question and such a hard one to answer in any form because I would be stumped if somebody asked me the question because I would be like going through like, which 40, which can I say 40, please? Because that's the number that comes to mind. <laughs> 
there's some British podcast, and this is so terrible that I'm referring to it this way. It's very famous. You probably know it and the interviewer, but th- they have that kind of iconic question where it's like, you're stranded on a desert island, one person, one book, one record that you can bring. And at least with that, there's less pressure. But favorite book, I'm going to just go with what comes to the the top of my head. It would probably have to be maybe The Bluest Eye. Wow. That's awesome. That's great. What about your favorite movie? Could you go back and say, because of this movie, I said, and my love for reading, you know, I wanted to be in the business. Can I tell you something that's probably like a little embarrassing? I don't have a movie that made me want to be in the business. I genuinely cannot remember being at an age where I didn't think that I wanted to be in film, television, or theater. I can't remember a time where I wasn't thinking that I wanted to um, do some sort of visual narrative storytelling. But what I actually used to do is those American girl doll things with the the books that accompanied them, the incredibly well-written <laughs> narratives loosely based in American history. I used to make my friends perform plays that I would come up with in my mind based off of these doll characters. And I remember less so myself thinking, oh, this will be a future career path. And more so my mom commenting to me that I was really excited about giving direction. <laughs> and she said, I, one, she said for, for a while, I thought I might want to be a performer. And she said, you're way too bossy to take direction. And then soon thereafter, she said, I really feel like you really enjoy, you enjoy writing, you enjoy crafting your own stories, you enjoy, you know, telling other people how to translate your stories. And so that that's really honestly what set me on the path. But I, I watched my dad's Laserdisc collection. And so, and he had really good taste. So I was watching, you know, All About Eve and Apocalypse Now and all of Spike Lee's catalogs and and then going to see, you know, my parents would take us to see, you know, everything from Godzilla is one of my mom's favorite films. So we'd like go to the museum and watch Godzilla or we'd go watch Daughters of the Dust. And I was seeing all of this really great cinema at a very, very, very young age. And then, you know, again, really just being nurtured by them to, to pursue that. So clearly, uh, you know, I was going to ask two questions, but you answered one, you know, what comes easy? You already answered that by saying that, you know, being bossy, that's great. So I would like to reclaim the word bossy. What comes easy to me is is leadership. Some people interpret it as bossy. <laughs> what is hard? What is something that is not natural, but very important that you've had to work on? Not surprisingly, listening. How do you get into this? Uh, you know, I call it active listening where you're not just listening, but you're making sure the other person understands that you're listening. Is there something that you keep working on or it's now become a incorporated part of how you lead? It's the thing that I would say I've tried to most actively work on for the past, you know, three or four years of, of my life in my personal life and my professional life. And also it's, it's been really hard. I have to actively work to actively listen. One of the things that I try to do in meetings, you know, all of the kind of tricks that you're given, right? Like don't speak first, no, however much you want to be the first person to say something in the room, allow three other people to say something first, or, or just note if you're talking more than, than the other people in the meeting. But I think the the biggest thing that I've realized is that the listening thing for me is actually connected to vulnerability. And I had somebody who's, who 
does this for a living point out to me that, you know, he felt like it really came from wanting to project this, you know, I'm smart and I know what I'm talking about. And he said, it, it feels as if you're not listening to the other person. You're waiting for them to finish so that you can say something smart. And once I started to really explore and examine that part of myself and that it was a little bit of defense mechanism, it's helped me a lot to be able to think about my interactions with people differently. Extremely well put. I think something that nearly every listener, including myself, can think about and incorporate into the way they, the, the way they listen, right? Because I think it's such an important skill for leadership. What was the biggest turning point in your career? I was working at Paramount Pictures and I was on a bit of a really great run. I was one of the younger executives there and they had promoted me a lot. I was working on movies that I was both really proud of creatively and like very felt very privileged to work on and also that had been getting kind of consistently critical and and commercial success and I was not only unhappy in the job because the company was going through, you know, a lot of transition and it was a, a tough place to work at the time. But also I, I was very like acutely aware that I was working in a part of the business that felt to me like it was the past. And I was looking to my left and my right and seeing a lot of people that felt like they were engaging on the part of the industry that was present and going to be the future. And I really just wanted to look ahead and not be in necessarily a legacy business. And so I ultimately quit my job to go work for an IAC company, Vimeo, which was seeing if they could convert from being really a, a service business to a content offering. And somewhere between three and six months into taking the job, IAC determined that they didn't want to pursue the content business. And so I found myself having quit a job that was pretty stable, in fact, that I was doing pretty well in, to take a job that you know, was a complete failure, which I wasn't comfortable describing it as such at the time. But I found myself, you know, everyone in my life thought I must be so demoralized and so depressed. And I was actually professionally happier on the other side of that than I had ever been. And part of it was because I think I really needed a break. You know, I was, was, I think of myself still as being very young, but I had been going at this pace of just chasing this carrot for, you know, 10, 12 years, and it not really sat down and taken a moment to just rest and then also take a moment to think about what I really wanted to do with my life. And so I took six months to do that. And then I also realized that that brief challenge, that three to six months that I was at Vimeo, where I was, you know, in a job that was much bigger than me, and I was all of a sudden managing 10 people, had never had more than one direct report. And I was all of a sudden, you know, sitting in rooms with a C-suite of people who were challenging me to answer questions that I had never been even asked before. And also, I dipped my toe in two of the most exciting and, again, future-leaning parts of the industry, television and, and digital. And I realized I'd learned more and grown more in that brief amount of time than I had in five years before, you know, at a legacy company. And so it just shifted my entire perspective on things. 
Some of us that work in tech are hopeless romantics, right? Because we actually do it because we want to change the world, right? If I take a Steve Jobs phrase, I want to make a dent in the universe, right? That really drives a bunch of us to do the things we do. Some people would call that as a, as a disruption. Some people would call that exactly what you said, which is seeing the future and not looking at the past. During that time, that happened, right? I mean, for you, it's really interesting. I keep talking about these phrases across, which is believe, inspire, execute. It seems like this, I want to represent voices that have not been heard. It came through during that time. Is there insight into why or how? And just give us your perspective. Two things happened in that six months of not working, right, of being between jobs. One is I had more clarity than I'd ever had before. And one of the things that I was pitching for Vimeo, that I was pitching out of a, a true belief, but also was pitching trying to find some sort of edge in what was even then a crowded streaming landscape, was nobody's speaking to younger people. And no one's speaking to, you know, the culture of the world as folks under 35 experience it. And that culture is incredibly multicultural. It's, you know, I was I had all of these comparisons of brands like, you know, Urban Outfitters. And I was like, look at look at their ads and look at the people they feature in it. Like why television, even streaming at the time, isn't really reflecting that. And so I realized that one of the things that was really frustrating to me about being in the traditional studio system is that I could not get movies greenlit, or I should say it was much harder to get movies greenlit that had people of color, but very specifically Black people at the center of it, either in who the cast was or you know what the storytelling was and, and what the focus of the story was. And I would have these conversations that were, and using air quotes, business conversations around why those movies could not be greenlit. And I was like, okay, well then then we should really examine our thinking around the business here because this audience exists, these filmmakers exist. And you know, maybe this is an interesting challenge for us to think about how we might view these movies that I innately know are incredibly valuable as perhaps more commercially viable. And I couldn't get anybody excited about that conversation. So when I got to Vimeo and all of a sudden it was the the business conversation was around doing to me the right thing. I started to think that if you can chase opportunities where you can align the business case with the what some people will claim is altruism, but I just think is the thing that makes the most sense, which is these people are these communities and creators and audiences are underrepresented because of choices that we are making, conscious or unconscious. They're underrepresented because of choices that we're making. And that's it. So let's just make different choices. And also in a world where we're a hundred plus years into films entertainment, perhaps this is actually a really exciting <laughs> new evolution of our industry to reflect the world as it exists. What a cool, exciting, you know, you say challenge, I say opportunity to seize. And it everything that I've done since then, working for Michael B. Jordan and, you know, being a part of his thought leadership in trying to think about policies around hiring in Hollywood and more equitable hiring to what I'm doing now with Orion, all completely was shaped by that thinking. 
it's really interesting. You think about diversity and inclusion. I should just put both of them together. But if I can just start with diversity, you are thinking about diversity in what you want to bring to the world, to the audiences. You want to take folks that are not being represented and have them show up. But there's also a part of diversity and inclusion on our work culture. How are we, you know, what I call uh, how's a sausage made? A lot of people like eating sausage, but the factory works very differently, right? In your case, in your world, does it work differently? And if so, what are some tips and tricks for people who want to create a diverse and inclusionary world? Yeah, it's a great question. We have the problem, I would argue, it's the same problem internally as it is externally. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time working on more inclusive hiring in terms of, you know, the people that we work with to create stories. So everybody from, you know, who's who's the writer, who's the director, what's the cast, but when we're actually producing a film, who's on set, you know, who's being hired to do all of the crew jobs. But I think sometimes I'm, you know, a little bit neglectful of thinking about those systems in place within the companies in which I work. Um, And I think the reason I'm neglectful about that is because my own personal hiring is always inclusive of a lot of different identities. I just, I actively think to do that. But even if I didn't, I think that, you know, my unconscious bias is towards hiring more women and hiring more people of color and hiring people from different backgrounds. Um, But then I also then have to look at the ways in which I'm clearly biased towards people like myself, right? Like I I, I usually hire people who have a certain education background or, you know, people that I feel I can personally relate to. And oftentimes those people grew up in the same way that I did, right? Um, And that's a problem. And so I don't know that I have any tips, but what I'm actively working on right now is in the same way that we focused on policy like inclusion writers or, you know, working with apprentice programs or pushing the the guilds and the unions to change their rules to allow for more inclusive hiring. And I think the only tip that I can offer is internally at the workplace too, there has to be like very thoughtful systems put in place to counteract the personal bias of hiring managers. Because I'm, you know, if you look at my team, you will probably say like, wow, Alana's done a really great job of having all of this diversity. And then there are plenty of ways in which we are all, you know, similar. So we're actually in real time, you know, working with internally at the company and also, you know, bringing in people that are smarter than us in this to try to put those systems in place. It is a personal passion for me to focus on diversity and the unconscious biases we bring. But I find that inclusion is even harder just because with diversity, you can actually see different thoughts and there's so many different ways that you can be diverse. Inclusion becomes, you know, just how do you give people the opportunity because they're different personalities, right? And so it is just so, so hard and a lot in the tech industry, right? Just because engineers are the smartest people in the room, but they're also some of the quietest, right? And so you have to make sure that they represent, that their point of view is represented. Do you see glimpses of that in your world? I'll tell you, Chet, because I think you know that I follow you on Twitter. And one of your tweets that really resonated with me, and I was going to ask you this about tech and your company specifically, is one of the things that I struggle with in my industry is it's incredibly hierarchical. And I hate that. I've always, you know, I hated it when I was at the bottom of the hierarchy. I don't particularly like it at the top. And I think that's really the thing that I'm trying to combat is creating a environment where things are more flat. 
the listening piece of it and working on that actually plays, you know, goes hand in hand with this of, to your point, you know, really encouraging and pulling out however they do it, however their personal working style is, people that feel as if they don't or shouldn't have as loud of a voice in the room because of their title or their level of experience or just their level of comfort being in that room, making them feel and know that, you know, on an emotional level, that they are welcome and that they are valued. And that, in fact, I say this a lot to my team, it is your job, it's a requisite that you speak up. And there's no, you know, this this kind of uh, defensive way of showing up of not wanting to say the wrong thing or not wanting to look stupid or not wanting to be embarrassed in a meeting makes you worse at your job and actually has greater consequence than if you spoke up and said something that you later regret or have to apologize for or feel like makes you look stupid. And that that's something that I really had to myself work on. And it goes back to, you know, just trying to create a culture where there's really good communication and where everybody feels comfortable enough to have that level of vulnerability. Because for us, you know, if you're an assistant, if you're a young executive and you're in a room with a president or a chair or a big director or a movie star, it's the nature of our business to for for the younger people, the less experienced people to feel intimidated by them. You know, these are people that we put on these pedestals, we give big awards to, you know, we we put on the covers of magazines. And I don't know that I will ever change, you know, or even that it's a worthwhile endeavor to change that about Hollywood, but I'm certainly trying to create a different culture in my team. I tell folks that I'm interviewing, I said, I have two blind spots. I'm going to do nothing to change them. One is I don't like titles. And the second thing is I don't like org charts. It kind of works. My perspective to everybody who tells me they're, they're nervous is uh, is breathe because you are breathing. And the second one is um, just be yourself, not because you don't have a choice. Yes, <laughs> and <I> so <laughs> those two things just kind of like get you through almost any big thing that you have to do. I'm going to shift gears here, get a little bit more personal. Who inspires you? I think, you know, this is at the risk of sounding a little corny. I I think I'm most inspired by the people in my personal life. The family that I come from, my mom has 12 siblings and I have a pretty large family on her side. And I've seen everyone go through what seems to be insurmountable odds. And they are a tenacious graceful, kind of classy, wonderful, wonderful group of people. And I think that, frankly, you know, anytime I have any sort of obstacle, professional or personal, that's the thing that I draw on the most. And then I will tell you, I, you know, this also might sound, you know, a little bit disingenuous, but I'm truly most inspired by the younger people that I work with. And I literally changed one of my meetings so that they can just tell me what they're excited about. And it's easily my favorite meeting I have all week. It's Friday morning. And I end up learning about things that I otherwise would know nothing about. And I also really appreciate, I took my my cousin as a freshman at USC and I took her and, and four of her friends to dinner last night. And I just was thinking like, this is such a positive, optimistic group of people. And I realized I don't get to be around that a lot. Like, and I don't know if it's if it's a generalization or an oversimplification to say the older you get, you know, the more cynical the people are around you. I'm sure that's not true across the board, but I do not myself in my personal and professional life get to be around that kind of 
optimism and excitement uh, often. So I really, I really love spending time with people younger than myself. I noticed uh, Barack Obama follows you on Twitter. What's the story there? He does. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, President Obama and I No, that's really wow. Now I'm going to I have to go uh, tweet him. I didn't know that. But um, I imagine one, he probably follows everyone. And two, uh, I did. I will say my one actual connection to President Obama, other than generally, I, I grew up in Chicago and my parents have definitely, you know, there's one degree of separation and they've spent some time with him and Michelle, I hope it's okay to call them by their first names. But uh, but we did a program with, when I worked with Michael B. Jordan, he wanted to start a fellowship, speaking of young people, to uh, create some sort of pipeline for younger aspiring creatives to get a foot in. And we partnered with My Brother's Keeper, um, to design the program and we were able to go to this wonderful event and announce it in Oakland. So that is my one actual connection to the president. What advice would you share with a younger version of yourself? I do this actually a lot. I say this to actual younger people today because I think this is only become exacerbated the more time has gone and the more everyone has phones and access to things. But I would really try to encourage myself to either be less anxious, which is bad advice because you can't give people advice to feel differently, but certainly to work on the anxiety that I had about things that was just proper and true anxiety versus actually having a problem to solve. The most honest advice I could give someone is the most honest advice I could have given myself. There will be really great things that happen to you that are not of your doing. And there will be really terrible things that happen to you that are not of your doing. That is just life. Trying to control, to have more good things happen than bad is a fool's errand and a waste of your energy. And, and you know, in, in some ways, as again, cheesy as it sounds, kind of, you know, go with the flow and ride the good and the bad. They're, they're both incredibly valuable. That is so well said. I have a different way of saying what you just said, which is, you know, we are, if I can take a sailing analogy, we can, we can be great sailors, but the wind has to show up. And sometimes the wind direction changes and it's not good for us. Sometimes it changes and it's good for us. And all we can do is tend to be the best sailors in any circumstances that show up. Rapid fire, quick responses. What's one TV show everyone needs to watch this fall? Succession season three. If you can have a dinner party with only three people, who would be on your list? I would have my younger brother, Alex. I would have Toni Morrison. And I would have maybe Miles Davis, which is kind of problematic because he did many things in his personal life that I didn't agree with, but I'm just so fascinated by a brain that thinks that way. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an awesome list. Um, I think you mentioned this, but let me ask you again, what's your favorite film of all times? It shifts, so controversial to say this, but it would probably be Knife in the Water, which is a Roman Polanski movie. <laughs> I love the film, sorry. One word or phrase that describes a great leader? Regulated. <laughs> and open. What's the one word that best describes you? Stubborn. What's the one word that people who work with you would use to describe you? Intense. I've actually heard this a lot. <laughs> uh, last question. Uh, what do you believe you are world-class at? I would say I think I'm world-class and empathizing with other people. That is awesome. Ilana, I am 
truly inspired. I've taken more notes than I usually do in our Inspired Execution podcast. This is phenomenal. I think our listeners are going to have a blast listening to this. Thank you so much for having me. I have like an hour's more at least worth things that I, I want to talk about based on our conversation. And I have so many questions for you. I look forward to many, many further discussions. Truly, truly appreciate it and, uh, and very inspired. Thank you. Likewise. To build an inclusive work culture, be aware of your unconscious biases, practice active listening, and show vulnerability. Sometimes, taking a break is the best way to find clarity and motivation on your path forward. Storytelling is a powerful tool, and it's important to make sure we're telling stories that represent the world as it really is. In life, change is inevitable, and it's often out of our control. Try to take the good and the bad times in stride, staying grounded in what you can control, your energy and your mindset. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Inspired Execution Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And drop us any questions or feedback at inspiredexecution at datastacks.com.